Are the humanities under attack? Are the classics being cancelled? And if so, how and why should we come to its defense? Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably noticed that there's a growing movement that questions the utility and benefit of classical education, and indeed the humanities themselves. But do these criticisms have value? We need to ask, what is the future of the humanities in general, and the classics in particular? How inclusive can they be? And is the Greco-Roman world still relevant today? This week's Classical Wisdom Speaks features Dr. Eric Adler, a classicist at the University of Maryland and author of The Battle of Classics, as well as Alexandra Hudson, curator of Civic Renaissance, a newsletter dedicated to truth and beauty. But before we delve into the charges against the classics and their defense, a quick announcement. This podcast is made possible by our valued Classical Wisdom Society members. If you would like to support the classics, as well as enjoy instant access to our fantastic resources and supporting materials, including our Classical Wisdom Literary Magazine, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click Start Here. Now onto the Western canon, the future of humanities, and the value of the classics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's webinar event, uh, a very special uh, event we have today. Um, this is a collaboration between myself, Anya Leonard of Classical Wisdom, Alexandra Hudson of Civic Renaissance, and the author, Eric Adler, author of Battle of the Classics. Um, just as a quick welcome uh, for those who are new to Classical Wisdom, we are a website dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Um, and you can check us out at classicalwisdom.com. We have wonderful resources, uh, including a podcast, free newsletter, and we also have a society for our members um, that is included with lots of fantastic resources. So please feel free to check that out if you're interested. Uh, and now I'll pass you on to Alexandra, who can start us off on our discussion. Uh, and just as a quick note beforehand as well, you feel free to write in questions at any point, um, but we will address them after the initial Q&A and discussion. So without further ado, I will pass you on to Alexandra. Hi, everyone. My name is Alexandra Hudson. Thank you so much to each of you for being here. As Anya said, um, I'm the curator of Civic Renaissance, a newsletter and intellectual community dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth, and the wisdom of the past. Um, I'm a lifelong student and lover of, of the classics, classical ideas. My father would uh, read to me in bed, in bed at night uh, of Plato's theory of the forms and was just really nourished in my curiosity and love of learning from an early age. And I dedicated my life now to these ideas. And so when I encountered um, Eric's book, The Battle of the Classics, how a 19th century debate can save the human humanities today, just out um, from Oxford University Press, when I encountered this book, uh, I thought I have to read it. And I, I, any, any modern defense for classical learning and, and the wisdom of the past and the humanities uh, just really excites me. And, and so I, I read the book, loved it, and got a hold of Eric and, and thought it would be wonderful to invite all of you um, in to have a public conversation about the what is the utility of the humanities today and what might the future of the humanities look like in a moment where there's a lot of questions going on in our public square about 
what is the usefulness of, of these old dusty books and old dusty thinkers. And um, as someone who, who thinks that they do have a role, I thought I'd also uh, leverage the intellectual horsepower of my uh, dear and new friend Anya, uh, who is an absolute force of nature and a lover of these ideas as well, um, just to, just to uh, incorporate more voices into this important and, and timely conversation. Uh, part of the reason why this, is, this conversation is on people's minds is because earlier in January, the New York Times ran uh, a, um, a profile of Dan L. Padilla Peralta, a classicist uh, at Princeton University, who uh, argued that maybe his own <laughs> discipline might not be um, might not deserve a future. And uh, there was there were, uh, since then there were a number of, of conversations and and um, commentariat <laughs> commentary from our commentariat class uh, going back and forth about about the merit of that. Um, and and uh, some of those arguments were better or worse. I'm really excited to hear how um, Dr. Adler, a classicist at the University of Maryland, uh, what he thinks about about this uh, this conversation um, and how how a really uh, intellectually robust uh, history, grounding this conversation history and understanding the history of the humanities, how that can inform this conversation we're currently having now um, and, and what and how that history might inform what the future will look like. So with, with that sort of context for this conversation, um, I'd love to uh, invite Dr. Adler. So can you tell us kind of what, to give us a little overview of the history of the humanities. What are they and how does it relate to the classics, your discipline? Uh, and, and so what is it that we're talking about here? Yeah, great. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's a, a pleasure to be able to speak about the book in a public conversation. So I thank you uh, both about uh, for that. Um, let me say that one of the things that I'm trying to do in my book is to defend the humanistic tradition as a whole and defend the humanities as a whole. And so the book does talk about the classics specifically. And but in general, I'm concerned not only about the classics, but the humanities overall. And one of the contentions I offer in my book is that contemporary defenses of the humanities are oftentimes less compelling than they might be. And one of the reasons, it's only one, but one of the reasons for this to be the case is the fact that many of the defenses that you see nowadays are actually disconnected from the history of the humanistic tradition. They see the humanities in a particular way, but that particular way is in many ways a late 19th century vision of the humanities and following. And so it's cut off from an earlier history of the humanities, and therefore there's a loss of the complexity of the humanistic tradition. To talk about this very basically, the humanistic tradition, I argue in my book, commences in Roman antiquity. And it commences um, as far as a kind of theory of the humanities, if you will, with Cicero, the first century BC uh, author, statesman, philosopher, and so forth. And he refers to, in a couple of his works, something he calls the studia humanitatis, the studies of humanity or the studies of civilization. And in his vision, of this, which we would call the humanities, a sort of birthplace of the humanities. His vision of the humanities is linked to an all-encompassing, non-vocational uh, uh, study, lifelong study, that is going to improve a person, make a person humane, hmm. beneficent, averse to violence. And so for, for Cicero, the studia humanitatis are the same thing as what he calls the artes liberales or liberal arts. And in fact, both of those phrases 
uh, come to us from Cicero first in our extant literature. We're not sure that he came up with those phrases or coined them, but they come from him first. And so he has, there's no distinction between the, the humanities as he sees them and the liberal arts, they're the same. So the sciences, math and so forth are linked to this. Although clearly what's, what's most important perhaps for Cicero in his vision of the humanities is the study of literature and what literature can do, great works of literature. This ancient tradition gets revivified, but also narrowed in the Renaissance with the Renaissance humanists, first in Italy and then elsewhere. They look back to Cicero as their vision of education or that what the proper vision of education should be, but they narrow the, the tradition. So the Renaissance humanists, the goal is the perfection of character, the perfection of oneself, but they see this through Greek and Latin literary masterpieces, that you should study Greek and Latin literature in the original language, and doing so will give you the key to the good life, how to live the good life and how to be a good person. So it's in the Renaissance, not in antiquity, that the liberal arts and the humanities um, get separated. They're overlapping, but separated. And so uh, the, the Renaissance humanist vision of the humanities is what we would probably call today the classical humanities. Right? The, the focus is on the study in the original language of Greek and Latin literature. Right? So this ends up being the key conception of the humanities from the Italian Renaissance onward into the mid 19th century. That conception, however, had a number of detractors. And in early America, the classical humanities were the bedrock of American higher learning. Students mm. had to have Latin and Greek learning in order to get to college. And these were acquired subjects when you went to college. Um, by the mid-19th century, it became clear that this vision, this Renaissance vision of the humanities was no longer going to fly as the bedrock of American higher education. And so in the mid-19th century, 1850s into the 1860s, a number of educational thinkers who were concerned about the rise of educational vocationalism decided to broaden the humanities to what we see today so that the humanities become a kind of grab bag of studies, most of which surround the study of language, but not all of them. There's also art history, there's also philosophy and so forth, but in some ways is easiest to define by their absence. So what you get is the humanities are what you get from the rest of the university when you take out the natural sciences, when you take out the social sciences, when you take out vocationalism and you take out the fine arts. And that's what, our, what we would call the modern humanities, what that is today. And so one thing I try to offer in the book is the notion that it's really hard to defend the humanities because the humanities have meant different things in different periods. But the key to the humanities, especially in the Italian Renaissance, but also moving forward and moving backward, is the notion that reading great literary works can perfect the self or at least improve the self. And that's something I argue in the book overall. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. And I love the points that you make in your book that the modern defenses, we because there are lots of people today who ag agree with you that that there is something lost, um, that, that our culture doesn't value the humanities, the classics, the great books, as we should. And so we've we've seen a kind of proliferation in this genre of defense of, of you know, the humanistic tradition. But one point you make that uh, in your book that I, I really appreciated was that a lot of these defenses uh, that we see time 
time and time again is they rely on two main um, concerns that that fall short in, in, in your estimation. And I agree with you that they rely too much that, you know, studying the great books, they help you cultivate critical thinking. <laughs> and, and, and they say studying the great studying uh, classical languages like Greek and Latin, um, they help you um, with this mental technical skill. But then those those fall apart pretty quickly when you say, well, why can't we learn those those mental mental technical skills from from German or French, you know? And and you you use historical precedents to to make that that point, which I, I really appreciate. Uh, I'd love to turn turn to Anya. Anya, what do you make of kind of the concerns about the 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 um, uh, about the classics, about the humanistic tradition today that we're seeing from all fronts in our public discourse? And what value do you think that there still is in studying the classics and the humanistic tradition that Eric just, just shared with us? Well, there's obviously lots to be said on both of those points. Um, and and the charges, I mean, there, there are quite a few different charges depending on, on who you talk to. And today I had a long conversation regarding the concept even of the canon and how the, even the idea of the canon and these certain great books, like we have a short time living, what book should we read? Uh, and, and people are afraid that the current canon doesn't really reflect the, the interests and diversity of our pluralistic society. And in some ways, you know, there's, there's I mean, there's a lot to be said that it is some of these from a specific time period. Um, I would venture that it depends. There are canon traditions in many different cultures, so that uh, you know you have a Chinese canon, you have a, an Indian canon, mm -hmm. you have many different canons. Um, so we are specifically speaking about more the Western canon. But I think that the, the problem is, is that if you want to take away some of these sort of foundational books, they have they are interesting and valuable in and of themselves, but they also are of great value in regards to what they reference later on and, and who they influence. So I always say that, you know, if you want to enjoy uh, going to the museums today, uh, you're going to have a hard time if you don't have that background knowledge in the classics because everybody references them later on. Um, so it's sort of like if you take away Shakespeare, you're also taking away everybody who's reference Shakespeare later on, which is just about everybody, uh, including people from various multiple different backgrounds. Um, so th the end of the day, the, the classics are very fundamental to our society and to all the, the subsequent cultures that have relied on it. Um, the, I don't know if we want to sort of specifically address issues of, of who's trying to cancel the culture, the classics, or the problems of them, and sort of address them individually, because um, I think a lot of these issues are so multifaceted, and what the classics represent is also multifaceted, that it is a time period that covers a large time period and a large group of people who are naturally diverse in and of themselves, that uh, any single charge or any single defense will fall short in its simplicity. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great point, Anya. Um, and people who would agree with you, who would um, vehemently uh, oppose people today that want to cancel the classics would say, you know, there are good reasons that we have a, a Western Canada, Western, it, it, they call it a great conversation for a reason. We, uh, you're, you're in um, beautiful Argentina, Anya, but Eric and I are in, in the States right now, and America uh, is, was, drew explicitly our founders from the ideas of John Locke, who is responding to 
to Thomas Hobbes, who was drawing from Aquinas, who was drawing from Augustine, who was drawing from Aristotle. Like it, it is a dialogue. And, and to understand who we are today requires us knowing that that iterative dialogue, that 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 great conversation, there, there are good reasons for that. And another example that I just came across uh, recently, taking uh, Elizabeth Vandiver's uh, classical mythology class, Eric, with the great courses, um, was that Shakespeare knew Ovid inside and out. And I've never read Ovid's Metamorphosis ago, but he, but he's like, she said, you know, it's not the language of Shakespeare that is actually that difficult. It's all the classical allusions to all of the mythology that he um, just knows like the back of his hand that we're not, we're just not familiar with. It's like drinking from totally different intellectual wells. And I thought that was, that was such a good point um, that you made that um, it's, it's, it's a conversation, it's a tr tradition. There's good reasons why we should study our canon and the one that that made, made, um, well yeah, I mean, Tolstoy loved Homer so much. He studied Greek just so he could read it in the first language. You know, it, even here in Argentina, Borges is, is considered one of the greatest writers of all Latin America. Um, you cannot turn a page without seeing a classical reference. I mean, he was such a classicist. So if you want to enjoy South America's greatest writer of all time, you've got to understand the classics. <laughs> That's a great example. Uh, and I, I really appreciate the sort of hero of, of Eric's book, a gentleman that's kind of been lost to history, a guy named Irving Babbitt, who tries to reconcile this. Uh, like we can find beautiful humanistic um, literature ideas in all cultures and and all all you know all forms of literature and how do we balance that with also studying the the literature and books and ideas and thinkers that made us who we are in the West like there's I don't think there's anything wrong with with you know acknowledging that we are part of a certain intellectual tradition today and I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to understand where we've come from but how do we balance that with the beauty and the ingenuity that we see in other cultural traditions as well. So I think Irving Babbitt is a, is a really interesting character. Tell us a little bit about him, Eric, and how you came to see him as, as this sort of the hero of your, of your story, kind of this lost history guy. Yeah, so Irving Babbitt was a professor of French and comparative literature at Harvard. He lived from 1865 until 1933. And um, I don't think that everything he ever wrote was wonderful and true and perfect and so forth that he's, you know, all you have to do is follow what Babbitt says and, you, you know, it'll fix everything or something like that. Um, there are some, as I point out in the book, some problematic aspects of his legacy as well and some things I think that he was wrong about. But he did try to put his finger on something that Anya actually mentioned that I think is one of the most sincere concerns for people who are worried about the study of the humanities today, which is how inclusive can the humanities actually be? Now, one problem, it seems, that's sort of obvious to us now about the Renaissance humanist curriculum is it's too narrow. It focuses only on Greek and Latin literary works from antiquity. They were interested in the medieval period, no Aquinas, I mean, never mind that conversation. They're interested only in going back to the ancients, right? And only two cultures from the ancients overall. So obviously that seems too narrow for a contemporary society. But when the humanities became the modern humanities in the late 19th century, um, those who try to defend the obligatory study of the humanities tend to focus on what became known as Western civilization. 
and the idea of a kind of Plato to NATO discussion of great works from antiquity all the way to the present. That, since the 1960s at least, has been seen too as too narrow as well. It focuses only on a so-called Western tradition. Um, it ignores other traditions as valuable to look at overall. And so one thing that I argue that Irving Babbitt was so important about in his educational thought, um, he was a literary critic and a social critic and so forth, but he was primarily concerned, or I shouldn't say primarily, but he was greatly concerned about education because he was the founder of this and the leading figure associated with something called New Humanism, a, a movement of educational but also literary and social thought, is that Babbitt put his finger on a way to make the humanities more inclusive than either uh, it was for the Renaissance humanists or for Western civilization. And he focused on what he called the platonic problem of the one and the many. The idea with the platonic problem of the one and the many is that human, for, as for Babbitt, as he sees it, is that human beings are all, all simultaneously all different and the same. And similarly, all human traditions are simultaneously all different, but they have similarities between them. And what he was interested in looking at is what are those similarities and what are those differences from great writers from a variety of civilizations? So that there could possibly be something we might call a sort of human wisdom, a great wisdom from the past, from a variety of civilizations that overlap, that may tell us how we should live a good life, what it means to be a good person. So that in the most essential questions of life, there could be some serious overlap between thinkers. And to Babbitt, he saw great overlap between Buddha and Confucius and Aristotle and Jesus and so forth. So he saw this kind of wisdom of the ages as he saw it mm -hmm. using Burke. And so he kind of put his finger on something that I think is really important for us today, which is that we can focus on literary masterworks. We can focus on humanistic masterworks in our own education, and we can still be inclusive. We can mm -hmm. still be inclusive of a variety of civilizations, not merely Western civilization. I think that is a deeply important insight and something that's rather amazing to come from an American thinker from the, who started writing in the 1890s. Uh, you know, it's a very uh, timely thought for today. Can I, can I just add, please, if, um, that also there is something to be said about a lot of these great works. Um, we, you know, nowadays we just we we simplify where they come from, but the reality is that some of them were great and have continued to be great for um, many different reasons. And so, when you think of Shakespeare, for instance, part of the reason that he was so popular is because it was sort of the first time you had an art form that was sort of catering to different social levels at the same time. And so you were, you were, he was writing for a more diverse audience than anyone had really written for before. And so he was able to have that kind of wider appeal because he was trying to write to different classes and different parts of the society at the same time. And so you kind of have a more um, diversity within his works than you did previously. And similarly, um, the same argument could be said for Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey that, you know, he really incorporates a lot of traditions and, and myths from all over the region. And so it made him more valuable in that it was more diverse, his appeal. And, and those are ideals that we hold today, that you should be more diverse and accessible and appeal to a wider audience. And part of the reason that these great books were great is because they had that same ideal um, and same 
goal, which is something I think our society can agree with. Hmm. That's a really interesting point, Anya. And I think it's one that's often missed when people uh, today argue that we should cancel Aristotle or cancel <laughs> cancel Homer because they think that they were insufficiently uh, insufficiently diverse. And and I, I'd like to start with you, Anya, with this with this question. Um, about how we should how we should approach some of the moral um, and maybe even intellectual shortcomings of these past people, past eras. You know, for example, Aristotle argued that women were defective human beings and that slavery slaves were you know we lacked, lacked reason. Uh, and, and 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 in the American context, um, slavery was justified drawing from Aristotle, like saying that some people are just men naturally born to be subordinate to others. And and so there's both the harmful um, dialogue content in and of its in its own context, but also the way in which it's been used throughout history that that has been harmful as well. What do we do with that today, Anya? How do you how do you approach that and then I'll turn to Eric to maybe channel his inner Irving Babbitt to offer some insight as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I would say there's a few really important points with regards to that. One is when we look at the ancient world, we shouldn't see them as this unquestionable sort of on a paradigm, on a pedestal, things that that we just accept everything fullheartedly. Like we we there isn't even a tradition of doing that historically like when you think about the founding fathers and their love of the classics they argued with the classics you know what i mean they they said this is the part i like this is the part i don't like it's an ongoing conversation that that is entire the history of philosophy is taking the person before that and saying i like this i don't like that like agreeing disagreeing like we it is a continuous conversation and, and we should see the ancients like that. They're, they're bringing interesting things that we can accept, we can reject, we can discuss, and we can build upon, most importantly. It's, it's, and, and second, you know, whenever you have anybody of any person of history, you're not going to find a 100% completed perfect person. I mean, Aristotle was wrong about a lot of stuff. I mean, he said women like, had a different number of teeth than men, and that is a pretty easy thing to figure out, you know, literally open up your mouth, let me count. And he got that wrong. That doesn't mean that everything else is wrong. And, you know, it's like you think of Newton and gravity, like he also believed in alchemy. Just because alchemy is completely incorrect doesn't mean that gravity doesn't exist, you know. So whenever you have anybody of history of any tradition of any culture, you're going to find things that you're going to dislike about them. You're going to find things you do like about them. Um, I, I truly believe in the art of cherry picking. Uh, and I think that is the case uh, in any time and place. Um, I believe that's the case when you travel around the world today. In any culture you go to, you're going to find things you love and respect about them. You're going to find things you maybe don't like and don't enjoy as much. The beauty of our society now is that we can try to find the best of everything and take away the things that shouldn't be continued. That That's how progress happens. Um, and I think that's it's a very important to see that society, philosophy, histories, none of these are static things. They don't, they're not museum pieces. We're all interacting with each other, with history, and, and learning from it and moving forward. And so I think when we think of the classics, we've got to think of them as, as uh, a foundational piece, but they're not a complete piece. It's not an unquestioning piece. 
it's part of a conversation that the intellectually curious uh, should should be trying to have. Yeah, if I can add to that, I mean, I don't have too much to say. It seems to me that um, a lot of this uh, Anya covered, but I, I do think that a lot of this pertains to how you teach and how you read these works. And I think that, uh, like Anya, I don't think we should sit there and read these authors uh, passively as great examples of peerless wisdom that is going to just sort of wash over us and all we have to do is read them and then we'll live just like Aristotle. Education shouldn't be like that, right? It should be, we should focus on those people in the past have thought, have offered very profound visions of the human experience, but that can mean the transcendence or the rejection of those models as well, in addition to taking things. So it seems to me that some of this is based on what you might call a kind of demon of the absolute. Either these people are just peerless wisdom or they're complete garbage and they should be uh, uh, put in the trash entirely. No one is like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so clearly that's going to be uh, not a useful model moving forward. I do want to add, though, as one thing, when we're talking about canceling the classics and so forth, I do think that there's been some misunderstanding about what that's all about, at least as it comes from the discipline of classics in the United States, um, where actually what critics from within classics are arguing, I think, or at least many of them, is not really we shouldn't read Aristotle or we shouldn't read Plato and so forth. I don't think anyone is arguing that. But instead, they want a more full acknowledgement of some of the malign aspects of classical studies as a discipline. Um, which has been, um, uh, since its professionalization, especially uh, in the 19th century, a malign force in some ways, of sexist, racist, and so forth. Now, it's not unique in that regard. I try to show in my book that, um, unfortunately, uh, the professionalization of, the, uh, of many academic disciplines in the United States, uh, and also earlier in Germany, came along with a lot of this kind of racist or uh, pseudoscientific kind of baggage associated with it. But I do think they want a more serious reckoning with that not a full cancellation of the classics. Unfortunately, I think that argument has gotten muddied with some of the sort of journalistic exposés, because the idea that there's a professor of Homer who wants to cancel Homer is sort of too delicious for somebody who's writing a newspaper column uh, to avoid. But I don't think that's actually what's they're, what they're arguing. Thank you, Eric and Anya. Yeah, I, I think that we have, uh, we have moral distance from the past. And we can, I think that in, um, condemning the bad and celebrating the good, that is part of what the humanistic tradition is. That's what Plutarch did with his lives. He he was uh he was himself was Greco-Roman, but where he his whole project with his with his lives was to find virtue wherever he could in people's lives and biography and praise it. And and not just and 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 to, and to find vice and and condemn it and to and to let um, this this tradition of biography of as moral instruction is taking the st taking the storytelling of history and and using that to build character like that's that's the essence of of um, his project and also the the humanistic tradition um, that we were just talking about and I like to take that opportunity to to pivot um, we, we've been talking so far about this historic tradition of the humanities being their best and and most easily defended and 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 their best for society when they're viewed as as um, tools 
as, as, a, as a model of education that sees people, it's for soul craft, it's for character building, uh, and not just critical thinking and not just, you know, mental mind teasing. <laughs> and what, like, in addition to just um, to the kind of conversations we're having right now where we're able to recognize the moral distance we have, celebrate the good, learn from it, um, minimize the bad and um, what, what might what might uh, reclaiming that that tradition of education as as soul craft and character formation look like today um, in, in our in our very complex system um, at, at our at our current moment I welcome I welcome either of your thoughts uh, if, if I may for a second and, and Anya can certainly come in as well but I, I think that one thing I try to highlight in my book which I think is very dangerous for society as a whole is if you look at American higher education by and large not every institution but the vast majority of them you don't see any kind of concern for character development at all you have a hmm. curriculum that is essentially a choose your own adventure curriculum in which studying the Bhagavad Gita is no different from studying comic books right there's no there's no book at my university, you cannot assume that any graduate of the University of Maryland has read one book in common with anybody else. But there's not one book everyone has read, right? And so there's no vision uh, of a kind of a series of works that could actually lead people to think about life's great questions and come up with their own answers to those questions. Um, that is, I think, very dangerous because unfortunately human beings have both higher and lower potentialities as I think humanists have recognized throughout the ages. And we unfortunately live in a kind of curricular world in American higher education in which we sort of pretend that people don't need character development at all. Mm -hmm. But if we just give them vocational training, they'll naturally use that vocational training to good ends. But if they've never had any kind of character development, why should we presume that they'll use their vocational training for the service of the good? Um, I, it seems to me an insane proposition, um, but it's what American higher education does now. And so that is, I think, the chief reason why we need the humanities, classical and otherwise today, is that we need character development, perhaps now more than ever, if we live in a kind of multicultural, globalized society with all sorts of problems. We need people who are not necessarily going, or not only, I should say, going to be vocationally trained, to improve the material conditions of the world, but who are actually going to be good people and are yeah. going to try to live good lives. That's what humanism is about, and that's why we need it. I, you I want love good it. people? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a goal. I like it. Anya, just if I may add one thing to what Eric said before I, I, I turn to you. One of the most famous books on character that's been written in the last few years is by an academic at the University of Pennsylvania, I think, named Angela Duckworth. And her book is on, it's called Grit. And it's on, it's, it, for her, um, character is resilience, it's persistence, it's, it, and, that, and that is a really important part of character. But from my understanding of her work, character has been totally extracted from the sort of moral underpinnings that the human, humanistic tradition uh, builds on. I mean, the humanistic tradition, it's, it's about ordering our loves, it's humanizing us, it's showing us to be, it's, it's softening the rougher edges of our nature and showing us to value others as we do ourselves. And, like the Ordo Amore from, from St. Augustine. And I just think, I, I think that's emblematic of where our, our another, uh, I think a problem that you identified is that we overemphasize kind of raw technical ability and we see education as this sort of, um, 
you know, mass project to take human beings and put them in labor market needs. You know, we need, we need more logistics drivers. Okay. Like higher education, like give us some more of those, you know, and there's this whole, you know, push to, to uh, credential people in, in high demand industries. And that, that is a concern, but also that's not the only purpose of education. It's, it's important to have, um, to have a, a way to provide for yourself, but it's also about the, 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 the formation of the human being and not just kind of what we're able to do. Um, so that there's there's that concern, but also the concern of um, just how we're, we kind of are afraid to talk about things like morality today. We're in a we're in a very secular world that we don't we don't want to talk about, um, you know, good, good, good and bad, <laughs> higher and lower forms of, of, of our of not our humanity, but like our capabilities, like you said a moment ago, um, Eric. And I think I think where we're shy to to take on those kind of moral moralizing conversations and um but i think that 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 we need those because that's part of our part of who we are as human beings so thanks thanks for sharing that please anya go ahead oh no i i was i was just chiming in uh, jovially that uh the that most people just don't even think sadly about the goal of of being a good person like you know <laughs> it's the the world i think our current culture has become such a tunnel vision of specialization and trying to be very niche experts and this and that and I think people really forget that um, in many ways, actually having cross-referential backgrounds can even improve your work. Uh, it can improve your, your insights. It can help you, you know, see things in a fresh light, but that doing it in a moral way is much more important than mm -hmm. just doing something, that, that, that we need to have those moments when we think about it. Um, and, and personally, for me, one of the, the beauties of the classics of reading ancient texts is the perspective that it gives you in connecting you to people who existed thousands of years ago and to realize mm -hmm. that humans haven't really changed that much. And, and that opens up your, your mind view to see that the similarities of people across both time and place, that we're still human. And, and I think that, you know, a good point from you, Eric, as well, that like, that we have to reconnect our humanity and realize mm -hmm. that being, we're part of a tradition of people existing for thousands of years, trying to find love and intellect and, and power and understanding and, and all these complex human emotions that still exist, that existed then and shaped people and literature and philosophy as they do now. And that that's humbling. I mean, that's mm -hmm. really both humbling and awe-inspiring that we're still part of that tradition, um, which I just think is, is wonderful. Um, Alexandra, I just want to give you a heads up that we're getting quite a lot of questions coming in. Uh, so oh, I don't know great. if at some point you want to switch to Q&A or if we want to wrap up here, but just to give you a heads up that we have quite a lot of comments already coming in. Excellent. I love to hear that. I, I'd like to, I think, I think what you said, Anya, a second ago um, is a good segue to uh, what, what can be our, our last question before we incorporate the audience uh, into this conversation, which is about what, you know, what, what might this future vision of a living canon look like? One that incorporates other cultures um, while also maintaining, um, maintaining and uh, bearing in mind that there are good reasons to, to uh, that we, there are good reasons why we still 
read Homer. And Anya knows that I've just been devouring Emily Wilson's uh, translation of the Odyssey that uh, I had never read before, but was just thrilled that I found it so accessible and just kind of relevant to every, like I everything I see now, I like think of <laughs> through the lens of the Odyssey. And so I'm so grateful that that Anya suggested this this book to me, this, this what I previously have thought of as very daunting, kind of an overwhelming endeavor, because I tried before and failed with past translations that um, so so wonderful and accessible and, and democratized to, to, to someone like me. Um, so I, I wanna um, just open up, in, in your book, Eric, you talk about um, this this idea of the living canon that, that Irving Babbitt um, championed, you know, the analects of Confucius, African art, the, Nor the Nordharma. Um, what, 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 what could that look like today? And I mean, also bearing in mind that two things. One, civics education has historically been inextricably bound with, with the humanities. It's like learning how to be a good human is related to being a good citizen, a good member of the civis or the polis. Um, and, and that civics education is kind of, we hear a lot about that today, people are, are concerned, and that's a little bit been politicized, unfortunately, but uh, there's that, but also the fact that in, in your, this, where is this actually happening today? Where is classical education happening? Like there's a, a sort of classical renaissance going on, but that's predominantly in, in private kind of Catholic or Christian schools and, and select charter schools. So I want to bear in mind that, you know, as we talk about what this future could look like, this living canon could look like, uh, and I know your book is, is primarily about the higher education as well, but this doesn't, it doesn't only have to be higher education. So I, I just kind of wanted to, yeah, get your, get your thoughts. Yeah, so in the final, if I could offer a little plug for my book, um, if you will, um, in the final chapter of my book, I actually offer my own core curriculum um, as a core curriculum uh, that is an example. It's merely a, a series of examples for possible for possibilities for different colleges. Um, and it's based on the principle of the, the platonic problem of the one and the many from Babbitt, but it goes beyond Babbitt because Babbitt was really interested in kind of East and West, basically. And he wasn't interested in what we would now call the global South and so forth. So he looked um, beyond or, or he wasn't interested in a number of, of traditions. I think he wasn't sufficiently inclusive himself. And so I offer in my final chapter some examples of possibilities of a kind of question-based curriculum of great works from a variety of different uh, civilizations. And I was nervous to do this in part because I was worried that by offering the curriculum, people would just focus on the curriculum and they would sort of ignore the broader ideas, which work regardless of my curricular choices. And so I tried to make clear that I, I'm not trying to say, here's what you should read. As long as you change your humanities curriculum to this American higher education, everything is gonna be fine. Instead, I wanted to give an example of some core courses that could be inclusive in ways that are appropriate for today, but are also based on great works that give us insight into the human condition in particular ways. I invite uh, listeners, uh, viewers, um, to, uh, to see those examples, but also to see them for what they are, which is examples rather than kind of diktats of what American higher education should be. Um, can I just say uh, to your question, Alexandra, as well, with regards to, you know, moving forward and, and the concepts of a living canon, um, I think you're actually pointing out Emily Wilson's translation uh, is a perfect example of one way that we can make the classics sort of more inclusive and more 
um, open in regards to making it more accessible to modern audiences and allowing the classics to be enjoyed by everybody, but also to sort of reveal a bit more of the truth of, of a lot of situations, as Emily Wilson points out in her, her introduction, that um, trying to, to open up the, the odyssey with the fresh set of eyes you, you find that the translations historically mm -hmm. might be more biased than than they are than, than they have to be. So I mm -hmm. think in one way it's it's really valuable having fresh new translations, um, and I think that's a way to open them up. Uh, and if I might add to your point, Eric, like I think it's it's great from the higher education standpoint. But um, as as all three of us have uh, young children, I think uh, this can start at the home. And, uh, you know, I'm very lucky my mother is of Norwegian ancestry, uh, but also speaks Indo-Urdu. And so I grew up with Indian mythologies, Norse mythologies, and Greek mythologies. Mm -hmm. And if anybody has a kid who's around five years old, you need to tell stories all the time, all the time. Tell me a story, mommy. Tell me a story, mommy. And, and using these even foundational myths in the story time for your children is is like a wonderful way to both answer that very persistent question and to to give like the beginnings of so many cultures to give them that reference points so that later on like because the stories the myths are, are fascinating they're, they're they're enthralling that's they're encoded you know but they they're great they're also the references and when they start off with the, those languages of knowing who the Greek mythology characters are in Greek mythology, and then they're like, they're learning about the planets, and they're going, "Hey, wait a second, you know, let's there's so and so again, you know." I mean, you get this. There's Mercury. There's so many times that that these pop up again and again. So I think um, we can start at the very beginning at home, um, and and we can offer a wider range of of different stories and mythologies that. But the reality is, is that nobody is going to become a specialist in, in every culture and every mm -hmm. history and every mythology. So I think the best thing is, is just to offer options and see which ones people get interested and fascinated in. And I think throughout history, you're going to find people who are in love with different cultures and different time periods. And the world is huge. There's so many people. There is enough interesting stories to go around, and there's enough people to read all of different ones. You know, it's it's kind of like charity work. You know, you've got one friend who's like really all about saving, you know, homeless animals, and then somebody else is all about starving children. You, you know, you can't help every single person in the world. So it's great that some people want to help the children, and some people want to help the dogs. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be interested in different elements of history and societies and cultures. Anya, um, I love education for us all to start at home with this because when I think about my education, like the informal learning process, like for some of my most formative educational experiences happen not in the classroom. So we don't have to only be talking about classrooms. Um, we're in a golden age of information where there's, we have the internet, we have, you know, conversations like this happening that they're not credentialed and they're not in classrooms, but they're definitely forms of, you know, uh, so many other of these great, great platforms like Classical Wisdom. I was listening to your lectures on Zania, you have great resources walking through um, 
Greek Greek Roman tragedy, and and that that they're all free, or or uh, or maybe some of them are for paying subscribers. So in that case, subscribe to classical wisdom. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a great point that that starting um, you know a, a new revival doesn't have to be um, in classrooms alone. So. Uh, maybe at this point we yeah should we move on to the Q and A section because I think um we're we've got quite a lot so um maybe we should uh, do rapid fire where we can um so just the first one uh, from Joseph is I just want to thank you in advance for enriching my day I have no doubt I'm in good company I appreciate you all uh, the second question uh, is what is the relation here to Mortimer Adler's the great ideas. Oh yeah, are you related to Mortimer Adler? Yeah, Eric? I get asked that all the time, but I am I am not. As far as I know, that is not Uncle Morty. <laughs> uh, I have no relationship with him. So uh, uh, Mortimer Adler was a student of the so-called Great Books um, at Columbia University, and then he got whisked away to set up a Great Books program at the University of Chicago. Um, that was based more on what we would call the modern humanities, the kind of Plato to NATO um, idea. Um, that was read largely in translation in small seminar classes, first at Columbia beginning in 1919, and then ultimately with Hutchins, Robert Maynard Hutchins, who is the president uh, of University of Chicago, and Mortimer Adler. And they both came up with this kind of great books idea, both in the classroom at the University of Chicago, but also for the American public. And so there were a series of great books that people could buy, and they were uh, in tr English translation. And this was a way, uh, before classical wisdom, of getting um, great ideas into um, uh, people's homes. That was partly based on classical antiquity, but it was, again, this sort of Western tradition writ large. Sadly, mm -hmm. uh, no relationship to me at all, as far as I know. Um, so for our next question, do you think that the spirit of the age worships all things new, and therefore the classics are up against what C.S. Lewis termed as chronological snobbery? Where all things in the past are not relevant or valuable anymore. Hmm. Yeah. That's a that's a. I mean, I, I don't want to take all of these, so I mean, others can can chime in. I mean, I think that that is a problem that we have, what we might call a certain presentism and a sort of Whiggish notion of history that sort of presumes that because things are technologically better today than they were in the past, that therefore we are morally better than we were in the past. Unfortunately, I don't think that that turns out to be true. Um, now, maybe in some ways we're morally better than the past. I would like to think that that's uh, at least partly true. But the notion that everything is better now because we have the internet or something, or everything is better now because we have a smartphone is sadly not true. So I do think that one of the things that we're up against in trying to teach history at all is a kind of presentism. And this is something that's not just in our culture, but actually in our higher education institutions. At my school, you don't have to take even one class on the human past in order to get through your degree as an undergraduate. You could take a class in history, but you can also take a class in social sciences as well. So there's a kind of presentism, even in our institutions of higher learning, that seems to suggest a kind of impoverished view of the past in which it's all sort of not to be taken seriously. Unfortunately, I think, um, our moral history does not follow our technological history. And therefore, just because things are better as far as our material comforts, that doesn't mean that we live in a society full of better people. Yeah, and anybody who spends five minutes on Twitter knows that. 
It's true. <laughs> and I mean, we have, we have a, a huge spike in recent decades in the deaths of despair, the suicide epidemic, the opioid epidemic. Um, like, yes, unquestionably, our lives are better in many ways. We have unprecedented wealth um, and, and poverty alleviation in recent decades. But um, I think it just goes to show that having our material needs met doesn't mean our psychological or emotional um, spiritual needs are met either. Um, and this is why next week uh, I'm doing another conversation on friendship and how friendship can kind of elevate us from our, our current um, current divides and, and current kind of loneliness um, that we, an existential kind of crisis that we're having on many levels as well. C.S. Lewis also wrote The Abolition of Man, where he made this exact point that um, you know, we're, we think we're getting better and then we we drop nuclear bombs and, and the Third Reich, you know, kills 12 million people. And, and, you know, a lot of bad things happen throughout all of human history, which is a caution. Um, but it can also be be a comfort for us, uh, for us as well to kind of learn from those those mistakes and, and hopefully keep those lessons present um, as we seek not to repeat them. Um, I, I totally agree. Um, it's it's really important that we try to reintroduce <laughs> Uh, being human along with technology. Mm -hmm. um, okay, the next two questions, I'm going to kind of combine these two questions because we have quite a lot. So I would like to go through as many as I can. Um, mm -hmm. And this one, I think we sort of answered uh, a bit. So I'll just read both of these questions back to back because I think they kind of cover the same thing and see if, we can, if there's anything we can add. Uh, but it seems to me that the education system is failing to teach young people what is meant by knowledge including mm -hmm. what knowledge is and how one becomes knowledgeable. Becoming educated should mean becoming knowledgeable and appreciating that acquisition of knowledge is essential to being a good citizen. Mm -hmm. This is what study of classics and humanities provided to young people. How do we get back to that approach to teaching classics and humanities? And the mm -hmm. next one is if one is a professor who is sympathetic to the arguments that Professor Adler makes about the humanities, where should one turn for intellectual community? What societies, journals, publishers, et cetera, offer uh, congenial venues for this kind of work? Hmm. So I think they kind of they blend in together a little yeah. bit. I love I love that second question that very practical how to I'd love to um, I there are like I mentioned a moment ago we're in an unprecedented era of, of golden age of, of information where like I said there's institutes like classical wisdom and so many others that are uh, you know golden age of, of peak podcasts and all these different uh, you know areas where we can kind of keep our mind sharp and, and find community uh, in, in these level of ideas so that gives me an idea to have something to write on yeah maybe we can talk about putting you know some sort of list together um, like that after. And to the to the first question, I, I'd like to say, I, like absolutely yes. Like I think we're in an era that um, measure we we prize what we what can be measured, and what what we can measure is is testing and and curriculum, and what can't be measured is the human element. You know, like the what what. Um, character formation and soul craft that's a lot harder to capture with some sort of ta uh, standardized routinized metric, but politicians, policymakers, taxpayers, like we want metrics. We want to know that our tax dollars are going to something productive. Like, you know, University of Maryland is a public school. The administrators that at your school, Eric, they are they're subject to um the 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 whims of of Maryland's <laughs> legislature for a reason. So that there's that, you know, that accountability that we love in, in a democratic system. But at the same time, what gets lost is um the human the unquantifiable that that can't be reduced to um to a spreadsheet and that's yeah, attention that i think will always be with us yeah yeah so if i may add just very quickly so i know you want to get on to other things as well um i try to talk about in my book 
about the fact that if you agree with these sorts of arguments, which I think are humanistic arguments, they're not unique to me, uh, unfortunately, the professionalized modern university in the United States is completely against those arguments in many ways. I try to suggest in my book that the curriculum of the modern university, the choose-your-own-adventure curriculum, is anti-humanistic in its substance, and it was meant to be. Um, similarly, the, the method of research that most scholars are forced, or all scholars in some ways, are forced uh, to publish in is a kind of scientific naturalism which focuses on minute facts um, at the expense of these sort of larger questions of human values and of wisdom. And so to me, to get back to the first question, what's most important seems to me that we want to have wise and good people who are mm -hmm. adults in, in, in our society. And instead, we seem to be so focused on these minute issues that even say the SATs, it prizes this kind of abstract thinking that can be of a flourishing in people who are actually very unwise, very stupid people can be very good at very abstract thinking. And so unfortunately, I think going along with what uh, Alexander has said, there is a kind of obsession with a sort of scientific quantifying of uh, of, of, of value and of knowledge that is actually in some ways working against the larger project to create good and happy human beings. Hmm. Yes, um, and I'm just going to continue on because I think this next question still kind of continues with this theme of like what we're, what, what are we going to do about it basically. Um, so the, the next question is people as different as Victor Davis Hanson, Douglas Murray, Nassim Taleb, are great believers and proponents of the value of classical wisdom in our modern world. And yet they are independent and isolated proponents, making their impact on classics teaching much less than it could be. These are influential people. How can that influence be harnessed to influence and reinvigorate classics education? Hmm. Uh, I might I might start off with that one. Uh, you know, I, actually on the Classical Wisdom Speaks podcast, um, I had Victor Davis Hanson on to talk about the classics. Uh, and it is amazing because when you get somebody who has a much larger following, I mean, you get the numbers are just so much huger, you get like 60,000 views, like boom, I'm like, hello. Uh, and and I think it's it's great for people like myself and, and Alexandra as well to be able to harness that energy um, because it, if they're interested in the classics and they have a following, then from a classical standpoint, if we can get them to, to be involved in, in things that we're doing, then they, it can help kind of bring out the classics a bit more. And, um, you know, Alexandra has spoken to me before about the new social media platform of um, Clubhouse <laughs> and the fact that MC Hammer is really into the classics right now, which is uh, great and awesome. And he is probably doing more than a lot of these people have done for really reinvigorating the classics on a new social media platform. So I think that's uh, pretty cool. And I know even for myself, Class Wisdom, we're going to try to be doing a regular club meetup on Clubhouse as well. So if anyone's <laughs> interested, I'm still testing it out. If everyone's interested, they can find me and try to help join in the conversation because I think some social media platforms might have the opportunity to allow people to discuss these ideas um, and to, yeah, make it more interesting and accessible. Yeah, if I may add to that, I, I think that I'm very supportive of anyone, regardless of their politics um, if uh, or lack of politics, if they're interested in writing things that are actually of interest to a broader public. 
Um, one of the unfortunate things about the way that the professionalized academy works in the United States since the 19th century is it privileges a sort of writing that is going to be minimally interesting to people who are not already practitioners, people who already have PhDs in these areas. And so I very much applaud people, whether they're on the left, whether they're in the center, whether they're on the right or what have you, who are interested in writing for or speaking to a broader public. I think we in the academy ignore that at our peril because those are the people who are bringing people into our own classrooms. Um, if there are ways that we can try to uh, encourage that kind of work within the academy as opposed to merely outside of it, that would be great. But unfortunately, you're fighting against all of the priorities of the contemporary research university in order to do so. Uh, so I'm going to move on to our next one. Uh, this is actually from a long-term classical reader, Malo Alaye, Dr. Adler. My name is Opotye, Togan-born, now living in New Zealand, in my home country, and probably everywhere today. Critical thinking is often even regulated to the side as useless and not helpful primarily to the nation's economic development. How would you place this in your battle of the classics? Yeah, so the first chapter of my book, thank you, uh, first of all, for the question. The first chapter of my book focuses on a lot of contemporary defenses of the humanities today. And as Alexandra suggested, um, they tend to hinge on something called critical thinking. And I'm actually critical of that concept, um, not because I don't think people need to think well. I mean, I do think people need to think well, but I'm not sure that people, first of all, actually agree on what critical thinking means. Um, according to the professor of English, Stanley Fish, the phrase critical thinking is a phrase without content. Um, so what's the difference between critical thinking and good thinking or thinking correctly? This is very difficult to tell. But another issue is that people in the humanities have tried to argue that critical thinking is what the humanities do, that you study the humanities in order to become a critical thinker. And I'm not suggesting that that's a useless thing, that people should just be you know, uncritical thinkers instead by comparison. But the problem with that argument is, as Alexandra sort of pointed out earlier on in the conversation, is that people in the business school think that they're creating critical thinkers. People in the sociology department think they're creating critical thinkers. People in whatever vocational discipline think that they're uh, creating critical thinkers. People in the math department think that they're creating critical thinkers. So if you're going to try to argue that the humanities need to be retained in higher education overall. You have to argue that the humanities do something that other disciplines don't. And that means you cannot base your case on critical thinking because everyone thinks that they instill critical thinking in their students. So I'm not trying to make an argument that critical thinking, whatever that actually means, is valueless. I'm just arguing that that's not the silver bullet defense for the humanities, because in part because it's nebulous and in part because, well, everyone thinks that that's what they're doing. Hmm. Um, I'm just going to keep rushing ahead because we're getting even more questions and I know we're starting to run over time. So I might just add that um, if we do kind of run too far over time that we, I can send these questions to Eric and Alexandra and we can send them out in the follow-up email. So if, if we don't get to all of them, um, we can answer some of them in a follow-up email. But this, this is a question I don't know if it's really in the field of anyone here, but I think it's an interesting one. What is the relationship of the humanities with and to the emerging technology of AI? 
I, I'll take a crack at that just because I, um, it's something I, I've been thinking a lot about for my, my book on, on civil discourse and civility and how social media has changed our human interactions uh, and reflecting on what the future of social interactions might look like. But I think that the unifying question that both artificial intelligence and um, the classics um, and just this core of human uh, wisdom, the wisdom of the ages has, has in common is, um, is this question of what it means to be human. Like, who are we? Um, why are we here? And, and what makes us unique from the rest of nature? Like, what makes us different from, from plants or stones or animals? And um, that's a question that many, many intelligent people have offered answers to across time and place. For Aristotle, it was our political social nature. Um, for Pico della Mirandola, my favorite uh, Italian Renaissance thinker, it was our free will. We have a volition in the way that plants and animals don't necessarily. Um, for Blaise Pascal, it was our rationality. Man is a reed, but the weakest in nature, the, the faintest drop will, will kill him. And, and, and I think that reflecting, looking back, looking back on these questions and how these really smart people across time and place have reflected on this question of our humanity, that can help us think seriously and deeply about questions of, of the future. Um, I mean, I saw this terrifying, um, like BuzzFeed-esque kind of clickbaity link uh, that had a photo of you know two humans and said is like which one's the robot and i'm like oh my gosh that is so weird but like that's where we're moving towards where we're not even gonna it's not even gonna be obvious you know what which just you know by looking at a photo or like watching a video which which, which is real and which is not um and i think that has important implications like even even how we interact with technology today like Alexa or Siri, you know, like I think that has implications for um, for these questions as well. Um, Do you have anything you want to add to that, Eric? Uh, not too much. I mean, that's not, certainly not my forte, but I do think that the question is really good in part because it gets to something very important, which is that if we took the humanities more seriously, I think we would look at a lot of the challenges that face us technologically today in a more serious manner. And unfortunately, I think that we tend to sort of hand it over to scientists to do various things, and then we become appalled if they turn out to be kind of troubling in certain ways. But right. if we actually had scientists who were trained in manners to think about these sorts of human questions, the sorts of which that Alexandra just mentioned, but others we could come up with as well, that maybe we wouldn't come up with these very appalling technological innovations that actually make us very unhappy in a lot of respects as well. So I think if we took the human more seriously, we would also think more seriously about the present, not just the past, but how we should live in the present today. Yeah. Anya, really quickly, I, I, I love the idea of, of keeping going with questions, but uh, is it possible, uh, I, I sent you an email with, with a link to Eric's book and uh, the classical wisdom and the civic renaissance, just to put that in the chat so people have it uh, in case they wanna go buy Eric's book after, after this. Perfect. Or subscribe I'll, I'll, to classical wisdom or civic renaissance. Please do I'll, all those. <laughs> I'll add it to the chat and uh, as I said, I'll put them in the follow-up email as well. Um, and just to say for the AI, you know, it's interesting because classical wisdom is actually partnered with another site called Ancient Origins. And um, the founder and owner of Ancient Origins is a PhD and professor of AI. So it's interesting that uh, there, there is obviously a crossover somewhere. Um, of mm -hmm. ancient history and AI and, and how they kind of combine. Mm -hmm. 
Well, how about when we go like maybe two more questions because some of these sort of are cover a few different um, things that people say. Uh, this one is as a mother and a new grandmother, at what age could and should parents and teachers and our school systems introduce the classics to their children? And how can we inspire and encourage our school boards to understand the needs of our children, teens and college students to be exposed to the classics as part of preparing to be a good person and become an engaged citizen? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I can, I mean, Alexander will have things to say about this too, I think, but um, uh, one thing that I think we've already gone over in our conversation is that in different ways, people can start learning about the classics and learning about the humanities more broadly at a very, very young age. It depends on what that engagement actually means. I don't think that that means you want your three-year-old to be translating Greek uh, yet, but at the same period of time, uh, that doesn't mean that those stories can't be very important to them. As far as um, what you're going to do to try to make um, the humanities more important in the higher education for your child or for your grandchild, it seems to me that you do have some choice about the sorts of institutions that that person mm -hmm. can go to. One of the problems with many of the institutions of higher learning in this country is that they have this kind of choose-your-own-adventure curriculum in which nothing is more important than anything else, and that mm -hmm. sort of presumes uh, really perversely, that someone who is uneducated can make the best choices about what it means to be an educated person. Well, not every college is like that, actually. Not every program in every college is like that. So you can mm -hmm. ask that student to think very seriously about what sort of institution that person wants to attend and whether that institution actually values the humanities or not. Hmm. Really uh, quickly, Anya. Oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead, unless you, if you wanted to add something. Well, I just wanted to add, like, um, as I was saying before about what you can do at home. Uh, you know, obviously this last year has been very challenging for everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I had a five-year-old at home every day. And so what we actually did is we um, did online Latin classes for her. And she really enjoyed it. And, you know, there's really cute resources. I'm happy to send them as well, where there's, like, dinosaur programs where they teach you all the vocabulary and stuff. And, you know, she had a blast. Um, and she, you know, we chose Latin because she really likes, we have a Charles Darwin book, and she likes reading all the scientific names of the butterflies in the beginning. And so for her, um, the science, you know, my mother's a biologist, so I thought like, okay, Latin is, is really handy if you're into the humanities, but it's also really handy if you're into the sciences. And so I think that's a nice wedge um, into our current society that can open up for both sides because Latin, basically you can learn Latin and it can open you up to all the modern languages, uh, it, like all the, sorry, modern romance languages, not all modern languages obviously, uh, but it can also help you with sciences, it can help you with thinking and grammar, it can help you understand your own language. And um, you know, on Classical Wisdom, we have a lot of articles about, um, supporting Latin uh, as, a, as a good way to kind of expose people into the classics. And I would say if you're going to schools and stuff, there are a lot of great online courses uh, that like even when I was in high school, I did like an online, like we go to the computer room and we would study Latin there. Uh, and you know, I was also studying Spanish, so it, it kind of helped blend the two. But um, that's kind of a, an easier sell. And then for kids who want to learn a second language, and learning a second language is so valuable, 
it's so much fun learning dead languages where you get to translate just really cool stuff that you're just mm -hmm. not gonna, you know, it's not like the cat on the hat. It's like, let's kill these people and take over the world. I mean, it's a great way to invigorate children, I promise. So I think that's a, it's always a nice way to enter it in. But uh, that in mythology for young children, I think is a great way to start. Um, and I genuinely think a wonderful, wonderful thing for schools today now would be to try to bring up ideas um, on different societies, cultures, mm -hmm. but different types of philosophies and different historic traditions. And that can be a very diverse conversation, um, but that you can learn about the different roots of different civilizations. And that that's a great way to start um, to, to try to encourage people to, to take on the classics. I'd like to home in and echo on uh, two things that both Eric and Anya said. Um, when we start at home, what Anya said, and Eric said, start now, like it's never too late. And that's very much been my experience. I was raised in a home that loved ideas, uh, and I studied into, uh, modern European history and philosophy in my liberal arts undergrad, but I, I've since like, I remember being very frustrated with my liberal arts degree, like that I didn't, it didn't teach me enough because I graduated um, and didn't really know how the world worked. <laughs> and I've since been uh, like, and that's, that's part of what uh, another advantage of the humanities and the liberal arts, like it, 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 you know, it lights the fire of curiosity that keeps, that gives you the disposition to keep learning throughout your whole life. Cause there's no end of things to learn, no end of ways to nourish your mind, no end of books and ideas to, um, to, to cultivate and to, to grow with and um, and and so that's <laughs> I remember being very frustrated by that but um, but now I, I choose to be inspired by it and not <laughs> not angry at my liberal arts institution for not teaching me more that, that they gave me the tools to, to keep learning um, I'm gonna I've got a few comments here and then I think we should finish up with our last uh, question uh, so this is just a few ones saying thank you for the wonderful conversation as an engineer, I felt my education had been deficient, and thank you for stating what I believe. Um, another one is, many thanks for this, very inspiring and important. Um, and thank you for the book recommendations, and uh, for mentioning Aristotle's error on teeth, new to me. Um, <laughs> my question is about the value of humanities related to eudaimonia with respect to society. The Greeks were concerned with the polis and man's relationship to that, but the role of a citizen was diluted in the Roman Empire, and yet the Romans, Seneca, Cicero, had to consider the role of the citizen with respect to, to distributed empire. Is that the reason for starting your book with the Romans? It seems like the Romans borrowed from the Greeks and were less original. He mentions the Greeks. You undersold yourself. You talk about Greek paideia a lot, Eric, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so to talk about that, first of all, that, that's a very learned question that we've we've gotten uh, as our final one to wrap up. But um, I, I would say that yes, I do look back to Cicero and to the Romans more generally as the founders or the fathers, you might say, the fathers and mothers of the humanities. But the Greeks are the forefathers as well, and so it's certainly the case that Cicero was looking back to earlier Greek models and Greek paideia in order to come up with his own conception of education. Now that conception, that Ciceronian conception of education was in some ways modified and retooled to fit the contours of a Roman aristocratic society um, during the very late Republic, before the Roman Empire. So before 
um, we, you get a, a different system of governance, but one that's supposed to be for, in some senses, the Roman political class. What's going to make the leadership class of the Roman world uh, be sufficiently good to allow the Republic to continue. Um, this is not the only thing that Cicero is concerned about, but it is certainly one of the things he's concerned about. Clearly, we now live in a different political context. It's a political context that's been shaped by the Greeks and the Romans, among others. Um, particularly, our form of government has been greatly shaped by the mid-Republican period, at least as the Founding Fathers saw it. But we live in different political contexts. And yet, it seems to me that the idea of being a good person is not something that is completely dependent on the kind of civilization in which you live. And in fact, a number of books from the great traditions actually focus on the idea that you can still be a good person under a bad system of government. In fact, that's in many ways, this is sort of Tacitus's discussion with himself is, can you be a good person, uh, particularly perhaps as a political figure, living in a bad system of government? That does strike me as something that's very apposite for today. So yes, I do think ultimately the goal is trying to live a good life, to try to be a good person and so forth. And we should be aware of the fact that our own goals and our own values in our own society can be very different, maybe even drastically different from those of Cicero and so forth, who crafted the idea of the liberal arts, meaning specifically an education based on the idea of a freeborn person, something that obviously doesn't sit well with us today. And yet that education can still be of great value to us today in different contexts, because we have to think about these things actively in the way that Anya talked about beforehand, not to be passive recipients of the wisdom of the past, but instead to look at and scrutinize what people, what great thinkers have thought in the past about the human condition in order to relate that to our own lives in order to live good lives today. Hmm. Here, here. I love it. Um, just to say, we, we had a lot of questions specifically too about references for which books and societies and things like that. So those are definitely great follow-up questions uh, that I'll put in the email. Um, so I wanna uh, I'll let uh, Alexandra and Eric say goodbye. Uh, and I want to say thank you to everyone as well, myself. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation um, and learned a little bit about the, the history of classics and the future of it. Uh, and to even just know that there's a lot of us who really care about this. And I think that's really valuable to know that we're not alone. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll leave it up to you guys. Absolutely. Thank you, Anya, for um, moderating question and answer and for um, providing this, this platform for us to convene tonight. Um, thanks, Eric, for joining us, for writing a, a wonderful book. Please, um, everyone, who, and thanks to each of you for joining us on this call. Please buy Eric's book. Um, subscribe to uh, Classical Wisdom. Please subscribe to Civic Renaissance as well and, and stay engaged. Part of this, uh, the purpose of this conversation is, is uh, to build this community and to just um, let this process be iterative. Uh, there's a great line that Eric quotes at the end of his book from Irving, Irving Babbitt about how uh, adapting the past to the present is um, is an act of creation in and of itself. It's a really lovely line, uh, and that's that's part of what we're all we're all doing. We're we're um, we're part, we're creating what what this um what this tradition might look like and how it might might, might suit our needs today. Um, so so thank you, thanks to each of you for being a part of that, and and really hope that we'll be able to have conversations like this again in the future.
Great, and thank you to you both. Thank you to Classical Wisdom. Thank you to everyone who's been uh, listening and for the questions. And I uh, really, I'm really heartened by the fact that there are so many people who actually care about this subject. And in many cases, when you're writing in academia, um, you know, you get five readers, you're pretty happy. And so it's really delightful to see that there are so many people uh, in this organization that's, uh, that are interested in these really crucial questions, I think, for ourselves to live good lives, but also for uh, our society. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. You can find more about Classical Wisdom at classicalwisdom.com and about Alexandra Hudson's newsletter at civic-renaissance.com. You can also buy Eric Adler's book, The Battle of the Classics, on Amazon.com.